when you look at the book of Acts, it is nothing short of miraculous. Acts chapter 2 gives us the first sermon that was preached in the time of the church in Acts. And uh, you look at it and you look at that group of people and there is no way that you could logically say that an uneducated group of followers in an obscure place with a simple message could change the world. And yet that is exactly what happened. God went to the place that nobody else thought he would go and used a people that nobody else would have picked and said, I will use this nucleus to change the world. An author, Jonathan Hill, has, is a scholar in Britain, wrote a book called, What Has Christianity Ever Done for Us? And in that book, he explores the contributions of Christianity to culture, to the arts, to education, to politics, and to society. For instance, Pope Gregory was the one who started universities. Musical notation came from a monk. The first fully literate society was in Armenia because of the work of a missionary. And Wilberforce fought to end slavery. The author says this in the book, the European languages as we know them, our calendar, our moral framework, and more. Christians have contributed a huge amount to art, literature, music, architecture, politics, and science. What began as a mustard seed has now grown and spread to every corner of the world. The kingdom has been proclaimed for 2,000 years. It is our responsibility to continue to proclaim the kingdom, so that proclamation is not optional. Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power after which the Holy Spirit will come on you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Kingdom proclamation is not multiple choice. It's a part of the DNA of the church and of the individuals that make up that church. Here's where we've lost our identity. We've lost our identity that in thinking that the church exists for us to come to. But the church exists for us to go from. We gather so we can go. It, it is not so that we can sit in a Bible study, listen to a message, listen to another message on Sunday night, have a little prayer group in our office or a ladies group somewhere else and, and then come to another Bible study on Wednesday night. The, the question is, when do we apply all that we've learned? When do we do something about what we've heard? In, in the book of Acts, in the book of Luke, you see that we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. When do we apply it? When do we let God squeeze us out? I love this statement by Mark Batterson. Mark Batterson says, most people in most churches think they are following Jesus, but I'm not sure. They may think they are following Jesus, but the reality is they have invited Jesus to follow them. That's why the church in America is declining today. 
Stuart Briscoe was with us a few weeks ago, 87 years old and still strong and still preaching the word, uh, saved in England, has been all over the world in 100 countries. And he was talking to our staff on Monday morning. And he spent about an hour with our staff. And we were talking to him about church and ministry. And he said, you know, two of the largest unreached people groups in America are senior adults and millennials. I would add to that baby boomers. But he said, if you go to the average church and talk to their senior adults and their millennials and ask them, what are you doing about reaching your peers for Jesus, they would have to admit, by and large, not much. That's true of every generation. If you were to ask the average church member in the average church in America, what are you doing to reach your generation? The answer would have to be not much. Because if you eliminate the programs that a church does and the ministry that a church provides and just left it up to us to speak and declare, it would have to be a not much answer. But yet God has called us to be his witnesses. Some churches are really nothing more than well-trained spiritual mortuaries. It's just those that are dead in Christ, acting like they're dead in Christ, have never come alive in Christ. What do we have to do to change that? Well, let me make three or four suggestions. Number one, we have to repent of self-centered religion. We have to repent of self-centered religion. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's about us and and them. It's not us. You see, the church exists for people that have not yet come to know Christ. We exist to go, so we have to repent of self-centered religion. And when Jesus is Lord, then it's no longer about me. Second thing, we have to pray for revival because we desperately need it in our land. Because when revival comes historically, what happens is There's an explosion of evangelism. A revived church on fire for God will get active in evangelism. If we operate in the realm of revival, then we will, by the very outflow of a revived life, operate in a way of telling people about Christ. Thirdly, we need to pray for and plead with the lost. I pray for... 50 homes in my neighborhood every 20 days. I prayed by name for five people, five families today. Two of them I know attend another church of another denomination in town, but I don't know the spiritual condition of those folks. But my prayer this morning was, God, use those who live there and know you as instruments of evangelism and missions in the lives of those people that live around them. You know, we can live around somebody and never talk to them about Jesus. We can talk to them about their flower bed. We can talk to them about their yard. We can talk to them about a thousand other things, golf, football, anything else, and never bring up the name of Jesus. And then when they're gone, it's too late. So we need to pray for, by name, the lost and plead with them. And then we need to prepare for opposition because when we start doing that, the devil gets riled up. When we start telling people about Jesus, then we have confronted darkness with light. 
I love this statement by J.D. Greer. We need to leverage our lives for the kingdom of God. We need to leverage our lives for the kingdom of God. This is what J.D. says in his book, Gospel. The gospel is the announcement that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son Jesus to die as a substitute for our sins and that all who repent and believe have eternal life in him. The gospel is not only a means by which you get into heaven, but as the driving force behind every single moment of your life. The driving force. It's what gets us up. It what gets us going. Because there's nothing like seeing somebody come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing like knowing that you have planted a seed, somebody else has watered it, God has given the increase, and all of a sudden someone has passed from death to life. That someone has suddenly, who was destined for hell, is now destined to eternal life in Christ and can be a difference maker for the kingdom of God. Second thing is proclamation overcomes obstacles. You can't read the book of Acts without understanding that they faced obstacles and persecution, people telling them to be quiet. So what they do? They prayed. In the face of opposition, they were a praying church, and what did they pray for? More power and more boldness to go do the very thing that got them in trouble the first time. That, you wouldn't find that today. I mean, you know, if, if, if somebody gets in trouble for sharing their faith, the basic prayer would be, if we were honest, Lord, don't ever put me in that situation again. Don't, don't put me, I felt so awkward in that situation. They prayed for boldness. Jesus said, you will receive power. Talking to the disciples and talking to us. And that power crossed every barrier and made men alive with energy. Now, I love the power that Jesus gives us in the Holy Spirit because it's not like fossil fuels that will one day run out. This is a power that can never diminish. This is a power that doesn't run out. This is a power that is available to all of us through the person of the Holy Spirit. The gospel bridges cultures, but it doesn't obliterate them. It overcomes prejudice, but it doesn't destroy diversity. Now, I, I love this about the early church. They did not have a missions emphasis. Boy, if you're Southern Baptist, you know we have missions emphasis. You know, it's time for Annie Armstrong. It's time for Lottie Moon. I'm reminded of the story of the lady that got saved, and she lived in the Bronx, and she was a member of Don Miller's church. And he had a Q&A because so many people had come out of non-church backgrounds. And so on one Wednesday night a month, he'd have a Q&A. And so this lady, I cannot remember her name. She had this long name. She said, Brother Miller, says, I got a question. She says, when is this Lottie Moon going to show up and tell us what she's doing with all our money? <laughs> and Gary said, I was nine years old and sitting on the front row, and I could see my dad's face just wash out. You see, we emphasize missions and, you know, North American missions, and we emphasize in pockets and in silos. They didn't have a mission emphasis. They were on mission. And they didn't bring in a high-powered evangelist in a nice suit 
and uh, patent leather shoes to draw the net. They drew the net. They didn't use specialists. Amateurs shared the gospel. People that had only known anything for three years about Messiah and what he had come to do and then the power he had made available, they had only had that power for a few weeks and amateurs made known the gospel and they spread it all around the known world. Let me ask you something. How long have you known? How long have you had the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Where's the evidence? That God could take you as an amateur, untrained just like those disciples were, and tell the story of the life of Christ. They were amateurs. They didn't depend on experts. Now look at chapter 2. I'm finally to the text. This is seven weeks after Peter has denied Christ, and now he stands in the very city before the very people that had crucified Christ, and he's not denying Christ anymore. He's proclaiming with boldness and without apology. Verse 22, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Now you ought to underline that. Just as you yourselves know, there was no doubt, no refuting, no questioning that these things had actually happened. He said, I know it, you know it, everybody knows it. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. In other words, he's talking now about the disciples and many of them had witnessed the effects of the resurrection. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. They've responded. They've heard this wind and this movement and they've gathered and met these disciples and he said, Jesus is responsible for this. Verse 36, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now here's what Peter does. Verse 14, it says he takes his stand. Let this be known to you and, and give heed to my words. In other words, Peter's like a school teacher. Hey, 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 pay attention. Look up here. Peter's getting their attention. He wants all eyes focused on him. He's not going to back down. He's not going to be quiet. He's going to speak boldly. Then in verse 22, listen to these words. You listen to what I'm about to say to you. And so what did he do? First of all, he proclaimed the incarnate Christ. That God had come as prophecy had foretold in the form of a man. That God had sent a Messiah 
the Messiah, that God became man and dwelt among us. He proclaimed the incarnate Christ. That Jesus was not just a prophet or a teacher. He was God in flesh. Jesus is not like any other religious leader. He claimed to be God and he was God. And God said of him, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So, so Peter is saying, all these miracles, all these signs, all these wonders, you know about. Listen, Israel's a small country. I mean, you can walk from Nazareth to Galilee in about a day and a half. Uh, you can walk to Jerusalem in about a week. I, I mean, it, it's a small country and word gets around. As people are walking and talking and traveling the roads that the Romans had built through there and other paths, they're talking about these signs of water turning into wine and casting out demons and raising the dead and healing lepers and feeding the 5,000. Listen, you don't keep that stuff quiet. It happened out in the open. Even his enemies knew that these stories were true. But they had written him off. God performed through him is what Peter says. In other words, he's saying this is common knowledge. If you'd read the newspaper or watched the news yesterday, you would have known this happened. Everybody knows this has happened. The whole area knows. Everybody in Jerusalem knows what's happened. They're eyewitnesses. Then he proclaimed the crucified Christ. Not only that, that God had come, but he had come and Christ had been crucified delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Still, no rebuttal, no refuting, no arguing. They know what they've done. Now, look at what he, he says, that this has been accomplished by the Jewish religious leaders and by the Romans, the godless men, that's the Roman soldiers and Pilate. That does not mean that we're off the hook. One of the reasons for anti-Semitism is people that call themselves Christians that didn't read their Bibles. You see, it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. The Jewish religious leaders and the Romans were just the physical instruments of the moment. But it was my sin that drove those nails into Jesus. It was my rebellion that put that crown of thorns on his head. It was my scheming and lying and deceiving and hurt and all of the attitudes that are against God. All of that was put on Jesus and he was crucified not because the Jews didn't like him. He was crucified because salvation had to come through death on a cross. We were all there. Your sin was there. My sin was there. The sin of the world was there. All of us were there. Our sin laid on God's Son at one time, in one moment, in one place. Every sin ever committed laid on Him so that He could provide the hope of salvation. He's proclaimed as a resurrected Christ. He didn't just die on a cross. Sometimes you see images and jewelry of Jesus hanging on a cross. Let me just tell you something. He's not there anymore. He's not on a cross. That, the, a, a necklace or a piece of jewelry with Jesus on a cross does not tell the whole story because if all he did was die, then he can't save us. He had to rise from the grave. 
God raised him, Peter says. God raised him. He had to die so that God could raise him up again. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again in which we are all witnesses. Now in this one sermon, if you want to know what the crux of the message of the early church was, it was the resurrection. In this one sermon, there are nine verses that deal with the resurrection, with the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And what Peter does in this sermon is he takes something from David and he takes something from Joel. And so he goes back to the Jewish people and he says, now, you know your Bibles. Uh, David said this and Joel said this and Jesus is a fulfillment of both of them. So here's an uneducated fisherman standing before people that live in Jerusalem that have gathered from all around the world and he is proclaiming to them the truth of Scripture. He knew his Bible. Now, he didn't have a copy to carry around with him. He didn't have a New Testament. He didn't have a tract. There was no printing press. The only thing he had was the Word of God in his head and in his heart. And he shared what he knew. He had listened in the synagogue and he had listened to Jesus and he knew he didn't have a Bible degree. He knew how to take the words of God and bring them up and say, this is exactly what God did. Now, how many of you either on an iPad or on your phone or in, in paper have got one of these? Now, y'all didn't raise your hand, so we, we do have some Bibles in Lost and Found that some people left that uh, they apparently don't use theirs either. How many of you got one of these? You got more than Peter had, and 3,000 people got saved in 10 minutes. If you don't own one, we'll get you one. I'll buy you one. The Gideons will give you one. We'll find some way to get you a Bible. But you have in your hand right now more than Peter ever saw. And it's available to us. And it gives us information that tells us how to talk to people about the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we can share good news. Not only did he talk about the, the crucified Christ and the resurrected Christ, but he talked about the exalted Christ, verse 33. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God. Now, why did he bring that up? Because now he's connection, connecting the cross and the resurrection with the coming of the Spirit. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit came down. So Jesus came to show us life. He died to show us love. He rose to show us that he was Messiah. And he is exalted so that the Spirit could come and indwell us. And the Spirit in us and the truth in us is the power that we need to be proclaimers of the kingdom. Major Ian Thomas said, he had to be what he was in order to do what he did. He had to do what he did in order that we might have what he is. And we must have what he is in order to be what he was. The proclamation operates in the power of the Spirit. Verse 36, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In that verse are two points. Man decided and God overruled. 
Man's decision and God's decision are all in verse 36. You crucified Jesus. God said, you don't get the last word. Listen, God never leaves with man the last word on anything. Kings have made declarations. Popes have made declarations. Presidents have made declarations. Governors have made declarations. But the only person that gets the last word in this world is God the Father. God gets the last word. God decides. Man can say, well, this is what we're going to do. And God says, I'll overrule it. They go to kill Stephen. God says, all right. And so Stephen sees Jesus standing. By the way, it's the one time you see Jesus standing in heaven. Uh, he stands for those that are martyred for their faith. Which means that this past year alone, he stood over 100,000 times for people that died for their faith. Look, can I ask you a question? Do you have a faith worth dying for? If persecution were to roll across our shores and it was die or denounce, do you have a faith worth dying for? Man said, we're going to crucify him. Jesus said, I'm going to raise him from the dead. And the silence of the Jews tells you two things. First of all, it tells you they knew he was telling the truth. They knew that Peter was telling the truth. Because they didn't have any rebuttal. There was no refuting of it. They knew he was telling the truth. But it also tells you they knew that the evidence was irrefutable. I mean, you're not going to argue with somebody if you know they're right. And so they knew Peter was right, but not all of them believed. You see, a person can believe, yeah, I believe what you say about Jesus, I believe all that, but they can believe it in their head and not believe it in their heart. They can miss God by never embracing that truth in a personal way of not just head knowledge, but heart commitment. And so this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. So this uneducated fisherman says this is what God did, and this is why he did it. I love this quote. Someone said that Christianity is optimistic about grace, but pessimistic about human nature. We don't believe man can make his way to God. Salvation is a work of God start to finish. Now look at this crowd. This crowd was curious. If you back up to verse 12, they're asking about this coming of the Spirit. What does this mean? And so when they ask the question, what does this mean? Peter starts to preach. And then you come down to verse 37, what shall we do? Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? They heard the message, they received the message, and they responded to the message. You see, truth led to conviction, and it resulted in a response. Look at what Peter says. What do you need to do? Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, here's a problem. Where do you baptize 3,000 people? I mean, it's Jerusalem. They don't have running water. They don't have hot and cold water. There are no garden hoses. You depend on rain and cisterns to hold water. They don't have what we have up here. 
a baptistry that's ready for people to be baptized. So where do you do it? You do it in a cleansing pool. There should be some pictures that come up to show you. This is a drawing that's down below the southern steps. This is a southern wall and the southern steps of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And uh, back in April when I was there, I just walked this area by myself and uh, took a bunch of pictures, went all the way down to the street level, which is down, I went down below first century uh, time area. And the, this was a cleansing pool, a mikvah. And to, to be cleansed, you, before you could take the steps up to the temple, you had to go through a cleansing pool. And you had to get all the dirt off of you, even the dirt that was on your feet, and be clean before you went in the cleansing pool. So you had to be clean before you went in the cleansing pool. Got that? That's important. You know, it wasn't just, man, I'm going to go in that cleansing pool and get clean. No, you were already, you had already cleaned up even down to the dust on your feet. And when you went into the cleansing pool, they, they stripped down and they went and they had to go, not limb by limb, not leg by leg. They had to be completely immersed in that pool to come out before they could go up to the temple and worship God. Guess what? Hundreds, you see this one in the right-hand corner? Hundreds of those are below the southern steps at the Temple Mount. Repent and be baptized. How do we do that? Well, repent has to do with salvation. Be baptized has to do with your witness, your confession of faith. Not be baptized to be saved, but to be baptized because you're witnessing and confessing your faith in Jesus Christ in a public way. Just as you've walked through these pools as a very religious Jew, now you walk into those pools and come out knowing that you've been cleansed from sin, not just cleansed to go into a temple. So guess what? All of this is happening at the broad southern steps of the Temple Mount where people are going and coming all day long into the temple area, into the court of the women, into the court of the Gentiles. They're going in all day long. And this was a public declaration that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And 3,000 people that day, most likely in those pools, confessed before their fellow man, I have repented of my sin, I have received Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, and I now publicly confess him by being baptized, not immersed to clean outward dirt, but to be buried in Christ with baptism and raised into a new life with Christ. Not to be saved, but because I have repented and I have been saved. When I was growing up, my pastor always said this when he baptized. He'd stand in the baptistry waters and he'd take water and he would bring it up in his hands and he'd just, where everybody could see, just the water coming off his hands. And he would say what Philip said to the Ethiopian. Here's water. What hinders you from being baptized? So I want to invite you to do something today. I want to invite you today, if you've never trusted Christ, that today would be the day of salvation for you, that you would repent 
of trying to save yourself, work yourself into heaven, trying to be good enough and realize it is only by the shed blood of Jesus Christ that you and I can be saved. And in just a moment, we're going to stand. And when we do, I'm going to ask you to step out from where you are and to make a public decision of your faith in Christ. These folks on this day, they walked to that baptismal pool and they made it public. I'm going to ask you to do the same thing. That you would let the gospel of Jesus Christ, the truth of what he did for you, change your life in this moment. But there's some of you here, you got baptized when you were really young, but you realize you got saved later on. You came to a full awareness of what Christ had done for you, and you got saved, and you've never gotten your baptism on the right side of your salvation. And you don't need to be re-baptized. You need to be baptized for the first time. Uh, first time I was in the water, I got wet. I was about nine years old, and I was in Bible school. And my friend Mike Green said, I'm going to go down and be baptized today. Well, Mike Green had never beaten me in anything, so I was going to beat Mike Green. So I made sure I was seated one row in front of him, and the minute the pastor said, you can give your life to Jesus Christ, I stepped out, not to receive Jesus, but to beat Mike Green. That's my reason for going. And I got down there, and unlike this church, nobody talked to me about the decision I made. They were just glad I came to be baptized. And so I, was, I got wet in a baptistry pool, but didn't know Jesus. I went to church, but didn't know Jesus. I did everything I was supposed to do, but didn't know Jesus. Until the Jesus movement, and I got saved. And when I got saved, I got baptized. I happened to get baptized in the Jordan River. But I got baptized on the right side of my salvation. Some of you need to come today and just say, you know what? I need to settle this because baptism is the first act of obedience. Can I tell you something? If you don't have your baptism right, you've put a lid on what God can do for you because the first thing he said in the first sermon was repent and be baptized. Repent and make a public confession of faith. If you don't do that, of course you're not going to witness to anybody. Of course you're not going to give. Of course you're not going to share. Of course you're not going to serve because you haven't gotten the first thing right. You miss first base. And you're trying to get from second to third to home and get to heaven, but you miss first base, the first step of obedience. Now I invite you to stand right now. I want you to step out from right where you are. Get your baptism right. Get your salvation from Jesus Christ today. Come today, right now, in this moment and give your heart to Jesus.